and welcome to the Sophos Naked Security Podcast. I'm Anna Brady and I'm here with Sophos experts Paul Ducklin. Hello. Mark Stockley. Wow. And Ben Jones. Hello. It's been a while, Ben. Indeed, yeah, it's been. Welcome been back. Time. Welcome Thank back. You. Uh, ben and Matt are, well they're basically interchangeable so we'll slot one in when we slot the other one out <laughs> I was thinking before Sales the podcast engineers. I, I don't think I've ever recorded a podcast with Ben before but I have oh. I did a podcast about our RDP research oh did we do RDP research yeah you can find it at sophos.com slash RDP <laughs> I don't know if we've mentioned it before <laughs> Ben what have you been up to while you've been at, away from the podcast well, it's been quite a while. I mean, how long do we have? Uh, I recently got back from Croatia. Oh, nice. That was good fun. I went to Dubrovnik. It was lovely. Oh. Very warm. Oh. A bit too warm. Maybe. Oh, really? Yeah. Most British answer ever. <laughs> Coming up on today's show, Ben talks about ransomware on NAS devices. Duck talks about getting, giving tech companies access to our encrypted messages. And Mark talks about the latest Sophos Labs research on Balder. So, Duck, what have you been up to? Well, I had a very sad week last week. Uh, my dad uh, became unwell a couple of weeks ago, and sadly, last Friday he died. So it's my it's uh, time for a little eulogy, but to keep it relevant, it does have a computer security angle. Oh. When my dad was about 17 or 18 during the middle of the Second World War, he was old enough to go to sea in the Royal Navy and help to fight the Nazis. Ironically, he wasn't old enough to get his rum ration yet. He, he got threepence a day or something in lieu. Um, but he worked on what was then called a minesweeper. These days, they're mine seekers. They're a bit more sophisticated and they send out little robot drone vehicles to go and try and find explosive devices in the sea that the enemy have put there. In those days, it was much cruder. You steamed ahead of the convoy into the area where nobody else wanted to go and you went and tried to slice the the cables that brought the mines to the surface so they wouldn't affect everyone else. And of course, what was really important in that, as my dad explained, said, well, I was too young to be fearful of it. But firstly, the organisation was really important of how you did the security sweep. In other words, ship two had to be behind the cutting cable of ship one, ship three behind ship two, etc. And I remember one day saying to him, but dad, what if you're in ship number one, the one at the front, that there isn't anyone in front? And he said, well, then you hoped that the Royal Air Force had done their reconnaissance correctly and you start a little bit out from where you thought the mines were. And when you're going after, you know, the baddies in the cybersecurity world, exactly the same sort of thing is true. You rely on defences, on work that other people has done, have done to try and give you the direction. So you go where angels fear to tread in a way that puts you at the, at, at the least possible risk. So... That may be a little strain to try and get my dad's World War II experiences into the sort of cybersecurity world. But I think it tells a great story about how it's very difficult in cybersecurity for one person to solve it all. Yeah. It's takes all of us doing our little bit together, even if it's only a tiny little bit, to make things as hard as possible for the crook. So we all can make a really serious difference if we try. Great story. On that cheery note. I know. Hard to, to follow else. that. R.I.P. Mark, you've been tweeting? I don't even know how I can follow that. So, Anne, I have a question for you. Oh. You're an editor of a successful computer security news website. I am. You have to find or approve four or five pictures to illustrate stories every day. Yep. What do you think of the state of cybersecurity stock imagery? It is hard. It's hard to find good images. How hard is it to find a picture of a You just get guy a hacker in a hoodie, in a hoodie yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you just get a picture of anyone in a hoodie yep. and just put the word hacker on it. Maybe overlay some ones and zeros. I like it if no, it's they're dark. in the background, oh, okay. raining down Matrix style. Or sometimes, yeah. sometimes they're reflected off their face. Or someone yeah. in a, I like someone in the uh, mask. 
the anonymous mask. Oh, the V for Vendetta yeah. mask. Yeah. Yeah, because that's really meaningful. Well, not everybody, never, not everybody is as happy with the state of stock imagery as you are. Uh, notably, a company called Open IDEO who have um, started running a competition. They're offering cash prizes for people who can reimagine the visual language of cybersecurity, nice. which is, let's be honest, phenomenally stale. Yeah. Um, so stale, in fact, that I felt it was important that we did a poll, find out what people think. So we asked people, what is the... What's the worst bit of stock imagery that, you know, these are the pictures you see over and over again on, on uh, people's computer security news uh, stories. Unsurprisingly, the winner was the hacker in the, hook, in the hoodie ah. with 40%. Um, but What were the other options? Uh, well, we had the green ones and zeros, yep. V for Vendetta masks, yep. which made famous by Anonymous, uh, and then uh, a hand coming out of the screen. I quite like a padlock. That's original. <laughs> Alice or an insect. Yeah. Don't you, Alice? Padlock and key. Anyway. Well, if the article's about a digital padlock that's insecure, then I guess you can excuse having a padlock in the imagery because it, if it is what the article's about. Sadly, yeah. we've had to write about digital padlocks quite a few times. I was going to say, before you ask, who needs times. a digital padlock? <laughs> it actually turned that ducks are in at least a couple of articles. <laughs> anyway, the, the, the poll was one thing, but the responses were even better. So we got tweeted by, I uh, hope I get the name right, Hive who are an Australian cybersecurity consultancy, and they tweeted us a whole collection of stock imagery that they shot themselves. They nice. were so fed up <laughs> with the state of cybersecurity stock imagery. They basically they they photographed themselves doing all the things that you see people doing in stock imagery, just to show you how ridiculous <laughs> it is. But that's like treasure trove of great stuff. And I'm trying to persuade our producer Alice that she really wants us to shoot some of our own <laughs> naked security stock imagery in the uh, in the style thereof. <laughs> we did another survey as well. Yep. Um, so we found a bit of research by Spiceworks um, saying that uh, 32% of organisations are still running. Somewhere in their organisation, they've got an XP box. An XP has now been out of support yeah. for, what, f six years, five years? Long time. Um, so no patches for XP for a long, long time. We, uh, we thought we'd poll our readers um, and we asked them if they had XP anywhere in their organisation, if they were XP free, uh, whether they wanted to plead the fifth on this one or if they had something worse. Um, we got the same result that Spiceworks did. So 30% of the people who took the poll still have XP wow. somewhere in their organisations. But the thing that really scared me was the 10% people who've got something worse. And some of the people actually tweeted us to tell us what those worst things were. And the worst of the worst was somebody who tweeted us about their Windows 98 machine. And I say it's the worst. And if you see the photograph of the keyboard that's attached to this machine, you will agree with me. I think the best tweet on that was somebody who said, this the keyboard there's so much lichen on this keyboard it needs to be uh, a site of special scientific interest <laughs> it's absolutely disgusting um Bobbing what i've been up to there. this week is uh publicly shaming podcast producer alice for removing my sound from the podcast from 15 minutes to 45 or 44 i mean some might think it was an accident <laughs> some might think it was some kind of coup <laughs> well there was backup you could hear she's, your voice through the other mics just. I with think a little she's bit trying to take over my job. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice try. <laughs> well, it it didn't work, did so it? So how are yeah. you? Um, are you planning on keeping all four audio streams this week? <laughs> or? I'm planning on keeping Mark, Duck, and Ben. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> and I'll probably just 
And then when we when we record you this time on the video, you're going to make sure you've done your hair. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think maybe you should just keep it as a nice surprise about whose audio is going to drop That's out. That's true. Just... It'll be anabrading. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Ben, we wrote about an issue with NAS devices and ransomware this week. Didn't you have a problem with your own NAS device? I did, yeah. So when I read the article, I actually got a bit of a sort of PTSD, really, <laughs> from, from an experience I'd had uh, back in... Uh, I spoke about it on a podcast a while back uh, off the top of my head. I think it was season one, episode 25. Oh, really? Um, so do feel free well to... Well, not that you went to check. No, no, not at all. Just <laughs> off, off the top, top of my head. his head, yeah. That's it. Um, in which I discussed uh, an issue where I'd had where, alarmingly to me and unbeknownst to me, my... NAS box, which stands for Network Attached Storage, which is fundamentally a device with with some storage and an IP address, basically, that enables access to that storage across the network. Um, but it, it actually published itself to, out to the outside world externally through my router without any configuration at all. Um, so, yes, in, in, the, in the article, uh, Naked Security this week, it was talking about um, how the NAS manufacturer Synology had published an advisory regarding some findings that owners of, of their NAS boxes had reported that they had their files encrypted, rendering them fundamentally inaccessible to, to the owners of those devices. And this comes just two weeks after another NAS manufacturer, QNAP, owners reported the same set of symptoms. Um, it's later been concluded that uh, this encryption has actually been identified to be caused by a particular piece of ransomware called, uh, I'm going to try and say this, Echo Rakes, <laughs> e, uh, lowercase e, capital C, H, zero, R-A-I-X, so it's proper hacks elite speak, really, in, in, in its name. You have to be 12 years old to say that properly. Exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely, no matter how you say it, it's going to be wrong, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, what Echo Rakes tries to do is, uh, or rather, uh, it's dropped onto these NAS devices via harvested credentials, uh, administrative credentials for those devices. It's written in a the, uh, the programming language Go, uh, and basically what it does when it infects a NAS is talks back to a command and control server. So that's basically a server that's managed by the attacker. It looks to encrypt the files and then drops a nice little ransom note set, uh, demanding thousands of dollars typically um, for the owner of the device to get access to the decryption key for their files. So you could say it's a particularly nasty strain oh. of oh, goodness. Now I see why you didn't bring that out in our preparation. <laughs> I didn't see that one coming, but probably should have. Oh, Alice, well if you're pardoned. considering which audio you're going to drop out <laughs> later on, just, what just, you know, you know, just remember that pun. <laughs> so it's going to be pretty obvious to someone if they've been compromised. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the, the ransom note will appear on their NAS drive in the storage there, um, and also all of their files will be appended with the .encrypt suffix, and of course it will be so ben, illegible. Can, really. Ben, can I just ask you, you know, normally on when you get a ransomware attack on, a say, a laptop, the wallpaper mm -hmm. shows up. How do you, how, if this is on, the, on your storage box, how do you see the ransom note? Is it next time you log in or something? It's just sitting there in the in the storage drive, I believe. Oh, as an extra file. As a TXT file, Oh, I wonder file, what yeah. that is. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for coming now, Fortunately, pay the money. they left that one not to be encrypted, yeah. So <laughs> it, it would be a bit, defeat the point, really, if they encrepted the ransom note. So you presumably, wouldn't know what to do. presumably, like, you're at home and you're trying to listen to your music or something and then it's not playing yeah. because it can't find any of your music and then you go and look at the drive to find out what's going on and, oh... <laughs> I, I don't TXT remember leaving files? this suspicious-looking yeah. file Send here. Send the money now, <laughs> yeah. .txt. Yeah. Okay, oh dear. Mm. So uh, do we think, are these devices attached to the internet deliberately? 
or are they being attached to the internet by accident? So that begs an interesting question, really, and it comes back to, to the story that I posed back in, or rather spoke about back in season one, episode 25, whereby a particular protocol called UPNP, that stands for Universal Plug and Play, that was automatically enabled on my home router device that was provided to me by my ISP, had basically automatically communicated with my NAS drive when I when I put it on the network and gone ahead and published its web interface to the outside world concerningly without any configuration from myself. Obviously, so it was quite alarming when I found this to be the case. Uh, it also has the ability to publish other protocols like SSH, which can be used to, to access the actual uh, command line interface of those devices as well. Again, automatically publish those to the outside world. So, um, of course, off the, off the back of that, I would advise... Um, do if you don't use UPnP, if you don't need it, do go ahead and disable it on your routers, um, on your home routers, as it could potentially have the ability to publish the services externally that you might not want to have published, and could potentially make you vulnerable to attacks like like this, for example. Mm-hmm. But as you found, because you just tried to log in and. Wow, you got the wrong prompt, right? Hmm. I was actually, uh, at the time, hosting a website for my wedding on a Raspberry Pi in my device in a, in a, in a demilitarized zone, uh, so in a secure sort of um, land segment, network segment within my home network to the outside world. And every time I published it, after a couple of minutes, it would revert from the website that I was intentionally trying to publish over to the admin interface of my NAS. Oh, so it actually corrected your terrible mistake. Yes, <laughs> conveniently oh, and kindly of them, exactly. Yeah. Can, we, uh, can, we, can we just take a step back a second and just... Just take a second to admire the geekiness in the story. <laughs> <laughs> so you are hosting a website for your wedding on a Raspberry Pi. Yes, mainly with the main incentive or rather motive so that people could donate money to me for my wedding. So, oh. And the only way you could think to do that was to attach a Raspberry Pi. <laughs> so what tips have you got to prevent this from happening? So uh, if you have a NAS drive at home, you could take some uh, steps by which to mitigate the risk of, of these sorts of attacks. Um, firstly, use strong passwords for any credentials that you use to log into the NAS drives. If, the, if they support MFA, multi-factor authentication, do go ahead and uh, enable that. Um, disable the default admin account. Um, obviously, before you disable that, add another administrator by a non-default default name. Um, also enable rate limiting uh, if, if your NAS drive supports it. So that's basically, uh, it's a security measure that can be taken whereby after a certain threshold of failed login attempts, the uh, the device will basically lock out connections from, from that IP address for, for, uh, for a minute, for example, which slows down sort of brute forcing attempts. And as we said, um, with this particular piece of ransomware, it does enter a network, it, it harvests credentials using brute force attempts as well. So, so these are all steps that could be taken to reduce the risk of a successful brute forcing attack, really. Um, in Synology's advisory, actually, they list all of these steps above that I mentioned, and then they go on to say, to ensure the security of your Synology NAS, we strongly recommend you enable firewall uh, firewall in control panel and only allow public ports for NAS services when necessary. So that kind of comes back to the UPnP side of things. Because ultimately, yeah. this is saying control, don't publish it externally, except when you absolutely need to. But also at the same time, if your NAS supports UPnP and your routers supports new UPnP, unbeknownst to you, it could be publishing itself externally. So do disable that on your home router if you don't use it. Um, 
so yeah, so to summarise, um, I guess the, the the advisories here outlined by Synology that that, that I also agree with. Uh, use strong passwords, enable MFA, use non-default admin accounts, enable rate limiting, and of course restrict access out externally to any services that, that that NAS might be publishing, for example. And as I read through this security checklist from Synology, firstly, as I say, I agreed with all of them, but also they sounded very familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I, I can imagine that uh, both Matt Body, if he was in the room, and, and Mark uh, over here also, um, it probably sounds quite familiar to yourself as well. Do you have any idea why? Oh, no, we couldn't possibly think. No? It doesn't have to do with that remote thingy, does it? Remote desktop something. Remote, nearly there. Remote desktop pop filter. Are you talking no. about the RDP research? Because Matt and Ben I and I actually did some RDP research. Yeah, I don't, know if, I don't know if we mentioned it. Mm. You can, can you find, find it, it at uh, sophos.com slash RDP. I was going to venture a controversial opinion. Well, it's not oh. that controversial. Because um, I, I think it's important to say that Synology aren't at fault here. This isn't to do with any fault in the Synology boxes themselves or the QNAS boxes themselves. This is about how people maintain them. But, and we touched on this in the RDP research as well, if the advice we're giving is use a stronger password, you know, people have been giving that advice out for, what, 30, 40 years, and it's it's not happening. People aren't choosing stronger passwords. Um, and at some point, we've, we, we just have to acknowledge the fact that people seem to be incapable of doing this. And sure, we can say, look... On your head, be it okay. If you can't be bothered to choose a, a strong password, then you deserve to be uh, you deserve to be hacked. But that is victim blaming. Mm. So my question is: At what point do the manufacturer the manufacturers of these things, so Microsoft with RDP, Synology with these NAS boxes, actually have to step up and say, "Look, telling mm. people to strengthen their passwords isn't working." So Synology have got rate limiting technology. Yeah. They could choose to switch it on from the get-go, rather than saying to users, choose a strong password and switch on rate limiting, why isn't rate limiting on from the get-go? Because rate limiting makes an enormous difference to the number of password guesses that people can make. Yeah. Good point. Very good point. Very good point. The big news last week was about um, surveillance and how the Five Eyes wanted um, access to our encrypted messaging. Do you want to talk us through what who the Five Eyes are and how they're expecting that this to work? Yes, this has turned into a story of Five Eyes want encryption backdoor. So the Five Eyes are the United States of America, Canada, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, the Commonwealth of Australia and New Zealand. Uh, they've been in this kind of intelligence sharing alliance, of course, since the 1940s, right. since the Second World War. They were in intelligence sharing right through the Cold War era, of course, trying to find out what was going on behind the Iron Curtain. And these days, uh, I guess it's it's more about things like fighting the, the threat of terrorism and multinational crime. So these are the governments of those five countries. They're all English-speaking. They're all very computer literate. They're kind of quite influential. And the fact that they share this, uh, their domestic intelligence internationally has always been a little bit controversial. And they're saying, well, actually, we're really worried about the fact that more and more of the big companies out there, mm. the social networks, are providing so-called end-to-end encryption. So it's not just it's not just programs that really enthusiasts can go and download. Like everybody now, when they do messaging, it, it may be able to do what's called end-to-end encryption, which means that as 
your phone call as your text message. Before it even leaves your phone, it's encrypted and it can't be looked at until it reaches its intended recipient. Um, oh my goodness, we're all doomed because that means that child abusers will have a field day, terrorists will be able to mm. plot stuff and so on. What I want to know is why haven't they done it already? So we get this, there's a sort of drumbeat of stories coming out from the FBI, for example, where the Deputy Attorney General of the US uh, went round um, uh, for several months, about a year ago, giving speeches about the fact that, you know, the FBI is going to need back doors and, you know, criminals are going dark and we need to get access to these messages. Every time there's an incident in the UK, it cynically, it feels as if the politicians have got a list of the apps that they immediately they come out and they say the yeah. terrorists were using WhatsApp, you know, they, they, they're they always clear to name the app. Now, all of these five eyes, they've all got legislatures, they've all got, you know, governments, people who make laws. Why hasn't somebody actually put this into law? Why is this so much about PR and making speeches? And why hasn't somebody actually made a law saying, do you know what, we really need access to this stuff, let's make it happen? Well, it would be quite a hard law to pass and then enforce because... Most technology companies are opposed to the law, including Sophos. Go and read sophos.com forward slash no backdoors if you want our official stance. And if you want our unofficial stance, I wrote an article sometime last year, I think it was, on Naked Security about this issue of so-called encryption backdoors, where, you know, when Apple was being asked to kind of crack uh, a mass murderer's iPhone because it might help. Well, it wasn't even his, it was his employer's. Is this the, is this the San Bernardino the San iPhone? Bernardino, mm. I, that iPhone, um, that eventually they cracked via other means anyway. The problem is that the, the reason that technology companies like Sophos are resisting things like encryption backdoors is that, generally speaking, the way they get implemented simply means that it actually makes everything worse for everybody rather than some investigations better against some people. And the reason for that is that it's designed to be technically complicated to or tech supposedly technically impossible, as far as that that you can say that, for end-to-end -end encryption to be cracked, with a very good reason. The idea being that then you know that data you transmit from A to B, like an authorization to pay money, like submitting your tax return, like receiving personal information back from a website about whether your loan's been approved or not, it's really important not only that other people can't see that, because you're expected to keep it secret, but also that nobody can fiddle with it and tamper with it on the way and that you end up actually believing something that's false or agreeing to a contract that's been modified. And the problem with this kind of encryption backdoors is generally it kind of makes stuff weaker. And the typical ways that you go about it is one way is you say, oh, well, we'll, we'll bury what's essentially a hardwired password in the system. So you can set your own password, but we've always got one that we can go in. Well, that's great until someone realised that, hey, the key's always in the plant pot. If you always put the key to your front door in the plant pot next to the front door, it doesn't matter how good your lock is. All the person has to know is where the plant pot is or which one you chose. So, other, and presumably in that case as well, though, I mean, that sounds a bit like reusing passwords. 
If you're if you're one of the five eyes, Indeed. you're either going to have to use the same password for everyone, or you're going to have more passwords than you know what to do yeah. with. Well, there's another solution, and this has been tried before. And the reason that technology companies strongly and righteously, in my opinion, resist this is it didn't work last time, and it's very unlikely to work again. Is what you do is that you actually make you, you agree on some encryption technology, which is a little bit weaker than it needs to be, and you mandate that in law. Uh, the US used to have a thing called export-grade encryption. Oh, I remember this. So, you yeah. know, you could use a 40-bit key, whereas the crooks who weren't bothering with export-grade software because they didn't care about complying with the law because they're crooks anyway, just went ahead and used 128-bit <laughs> encryption, and the rest of us were forced to use 40-bit encryption. What a crazy idea, because the idea, the idea is... You can get the idea. It's the idea that 40-bit encryption back in the day, it was a little bit too hard for you and me to hack. But someone like the NSA, or for that matter, if you're know, thinking of China, the PLA, or anybody with government-sized uh, money available probably could crack it if needed. So they couldn't do it all the time, but they could do it when they really wanted to. So there was a kind of financial disincentive for them to crack everything. The problem is, within a few years, those export-grade keys became, became the kind of thing that, firstly, that a well-funded cyber crook, cyber gang could attack, and eventually a kid at home with a super-powered laptop could deal with. So you can weaken cryptography to try and make it crackable just by the right people. The problem is it's going to be crackable by anybody who wants to have a go. So you can't make something stronger by weakening. It just seems to be a contradiction. People find mm -hmm. ingenious way around, yeah. ways around these laws as well. Yeah. Did, did, yeah. did you uh, hear the story about how the PGP uh, source code was exfiltrated from the US? Well, it wasn't exfiltrated. It was lawful to publish it. So you could publish it and somebody could scan it back in. That was lawful. It was exporting the software in usable form that was prohibited. But the other problem was that, that what, the, the crazy thing about that export-grade cryptography law in the US is, of course, it didn't apply to software that was written outside the US and imported into the US. So what the US government did is they gave everyone inside the US weak cryptography, which could be cracked, and at the same time, they severely hampered their domestic market for cryptographic software because people went overseas and bought it where there weren't these limitations. So it didn't work then, and it's not going to work again. And of course, the other way, which the US government tried before, if you want to learn more about this, go get your favorite search engine and search for things like Clipper Chip and Skipjack. The idea was the US government would mandate an encryption system whereby, with a warrant, law enforcement could uh, basically force your device to generate two... Essentially, it would generate two keys for every conversation or every communication you'd have. So normally there'd be a, a key agreed between you and me and we'd have our conversation and nobody could figure out what it was. But with a warrant, law enforcement could get a second key with which, which would also decrypt the data that they could get and put in a cupboard somewhere so that they could actually decrypt the conversation later if they wanted. And of course, the problem with that is that an awful lot of every security for everybody depends on the security of the cupboard. And experience has shown that cupboards packed with cryptographic keys or super secret cybersecurity stuff, those cupboards do tend to burst open. Hmm. 
and Eternal Blue, the exploit that was yep. stolen from the NSA yep. and ended up being used in the WannaCry malware, is pretty much a case in point that even people who really don't want something to leak out because it's absolutely in the interest to keep it secret, even they can make mistakes. And those are the very people who are going to be keeping these law enforcement keys. So the idea, oh, it's not a backdoor because it's only a second key that you get when a warrant's been applied. You still get the problem that you end up collecting an awful lot of data that could let us all down later. It's kind of ironic as well in the in terms of GDPR. Absolutely. That? Yeah. That, that, that one of the things that, although it's not a law, as I understand it, in it, it's not a requirement of GDPR, there is this sense that you certainly hear it in the UK and elsewhere in Europe that like if you have a data breach and you could have strongly encrypted your data and that would have made the consequences of the breach very much less or zero, yeah. then you'll be in serious trouble for not using encryption. <laughs> um, I suppose the argument there is that then you could be given a warrant and forced to produce the key. Whereas the idea with end-to-end -end encryption is that the software is generating the key and nobody in between gets the secret. But the point is that if you, you know, that. I, I think that the, easy, the, the easiest way to summarise it is something that I agree with. This is a statement that came from the IT Industry Council. It's a lobbying body in Washington, D.C. Um, and, uh, you know, whatever you think of political lobbying bodies, I love the way they put this. Their general statement on backdoors and this kind of double keying and the stuff that, that the cupboard full of backup keys is the statement that weakening security with the aim of advancing security simply does not make sense. Mm. And I think that's the easiest way to think about this entire problem. Yep. You can't it, make something stronger by making it weaker. End of. That's a great place to finish, Duck. Over to you, Mark. Sophos Labs has released some, uh, a new report on Balder malware. Yep. Named after a Norse god, I think. Oh. Uh, so I'm going to start with a question again. Okay. So Anna. Yep. Do you have anything on your computer that you don't want other people to know about? Absolutely not. What, what would I have on my computer that I didn't want people to know about? I don't know. You seem, you seem weirdly defensive no, about No, there's that. nothing on my computer. Okay, well, that, <laughs> that's good to know. It's good to know. I think everyone listening can tell that there's nothing on your computer there's that on you there. don't want them to know about. And uh, if anybody wants to know what's on Ben's computer, you'll find it connected to the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, if let's imagine you did have some right, stuff yeah. on your computer in, that yeah. you'd like to keep secret, in theory, yeah. like potentially, like passwords, yep, uh, cryptocurrency, yep, your browser history, mm. um, then basically you don't want to get Balder. No. Okay. So we know this because this fantastic new research paper from Sophos Labs. Um, it's an absolute whopper. It's called Balder versus the World. Um, and like all these sorts of papers, it goes into exhaustive detail about how the malware works. So if you're into that, I'm not going to do that now. Go get the paper, um, pour over the screenshots, read the code. You did call it a rapacious voyeur on our uh, article, Balder, Balder is a rapacious voyeur. <laughs> I, I know you enjoyed those words. Yeah, to be clear, just... that's the malware, not the research paper. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Mark's being shown off with his words again. It's just That's just how we're writing. I just enjoy that every article you put in a word that... Might just people might not understand. It's good. I put in the words that people don't understand, and you put in the commas. That's how it works. That's how it works. Yeah. I punctuate. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. So if you're into uh, if you're into understanding the code, go and get the paper um, and read what the labs have got to say. Um, the thing that really stuck out to me was that this paper reveals 
um, some really interesting things about how Sophos Labs track this and some nuggets about the criminal underworld that produces this stuff and okay. operates it. So we should start with the malware itself. So Balder is sold to criminals, so it's not one gang operating all these uh, copies of Balder. It's actually sold to criminals, and then they try and make money by using it, by infecting people with it, um, and, and it sort of robs everything on their computer. And each gang that uses the malware controls it from their own command and control setup, their own C2 setup, and we'll come back to why that's important a little bit later. Okay. Uh, so Sophos Labs came across it in gaming forums, I think, where crooks were trying to um, fool people into thinking it was software that would help them cheat at games. Um that's where Labs found it. That doesn't necessarily mean that's where you're going to find it. Because there's a bunch of people operating this thing, they'll do whatever they think they need to do to get it on your computer. Mm. So um, don't think that just because you don't hang around in gaming forums, you're not going to get this. Um, so that could have been just one affiliate, right? There's, absolutely. The crooks yeah, yeah. have got 50 different people selling it and distributing in different ways. Yeah. So that could be just one guy's got, hey, let's use games. Someone yep. else could be doing some other distribution mechanism. Yep, it's a case of whatever works. So you'll see things like that. But the the paper also mentions the fact that Balder's actually been delivered by other malware as well. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I don't know why I'm laughing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sort of stands to reason, doesn't it? If if one if if your defences are down enough that one crook can get in and implant malware, yeah, then it's it sort of stands to reason that a second, a third, a fourth, and the fifth can follow where the first came in. So what does Balder actually do? Uh, right, so Balder acts very quickly, gets on your computer, uh, and starts off by profiling your computer. So it'll grab information about your CPU model, your operating system, the language, screen resolution, the installed programs, and a bunch of other stuff. Basically, just anything it can get for free, yeah. basically. Um, and then it ransacks your web browsers looking for passwords, autocomplete information, credit card information, because some people store that in their browsers, cookies, uh, the domains you've visited, and your browsing history. Then it looks for any FTP clients you've got, hoovers up your FTP logins. Um, it steals credentials from instant messaging clients. If you operate a VPN, it knows about certain kinds of VPNs, so it'll try and steal the credentials from those. Wow. Yep. Uh, and if you've got any cryptocurrency lying around, it knows how to plunder that from a bunch of different wallets. Uh, so it'll have that too. Thank you very much. Wow. Oh, and then it takes a screenshot of your desktop because... <laughs> Why not? Like, you know, you've done everything else. Rogue's <laughs> gallery. Yeah. yeah. Literally and figuratively. So I think it actually says in the paper, you can tell a lot about what somebody's doing and, and, and about them from what you... From taking a screenshot of their desktop. I'm not quite sure what that means, but... Um, I guess the idea is that, that 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 information gathering, which is very common in malware at the beginning, is it's probably why you get one malware followed by another followed by another, is that the crooks then know for next time, hey, this guy's got a good network connection, so he's good for sending spam. This guy's got loads of cryptocurrency, so let's go back for more. Yeah. So imagine that information gathering, it's just, it's like they're kind of marketing collateral, isn't it? And I think I think also there must be a case of why not. I mean, you're on someone's yes. computer and, yeah. and you can gather this information, a bit like the five eyes. Mm. You know, like, well, if we hoover up everything everybody says, yeah. it might be useful in, you know, one or two years' time. Anyway, so it grabs all this stuff, it yep. stuffs it into an encrypted file, and then it posts it off via HTTP to a command and control server, and then it tries to delete itself. Uh, along the way, like a lot of malware these days, it can also download more malware. So Balder does what Balder does, but tomorrow it might do something different because it might download, you know, TrickBot or you know, yeah. Reoc or something like that. So in, in a word, so it's not ransomware, but you still don't want to get it. Uh, so you read the paper as well, didn't you, Duck? Was there anything that really stuck out for you? I think 
the key thing for me in this kind of malware is something that we've said often. And in fact, we sort of touched on it last week when we were riffing about evil GNOME, which was kind of something not entirely dissimilar for Linux that was more of a research curiosity than a clear and present danger. And that issue is that these days, even when you've got a paper that can go into the detail that this one does, that's still only part of the story. And people need to remember that. And this, we almost, I don't want to say we have a collective fixation on ransomware these days, but it's certainly, it's the, it's the malware story that gets the most attention because it's the ones that kind of brings your business mm. to a screaming halt. And there's the glaring wallpaper. And there's the fact that in many cases, if you're prepared to pay, you can actually get your business going again. But it's the, the malware like this, it's pretty clear with what it's harvesting, what it's getting in the background, the aggression with which, with which it does it. The fact that it's all about being, as you said, a rapacious voyeur is the problem. So you, is, you think, sorry, you think that was a, a reasonable <laughs> description of the malware? Well, I, don't, just to, I don't know about voyeur, um, but certainly rapacious, that's something to bear in mind. As you said, it goes and gets all this stuff because it can and it might not get a second chance. And the problem is that while you can... Re- in many cases, actually recover from ransomware, even if you pay the money. You can't, you cannot physically recover from the damage that this kind of malware does. Mm. When you look at all those side effects, you can't get the screenshots back because they're already out there. You you can go and change your passwords, but for the long period of time that the crooks may have had them, there's nothing you can do about it at that point. And so there's the difference between the information scrambler and the information stealer. And the problem yeah. with the information stealer is the reason these guys do it is every little bit has its value. Like they don't care if they only make 50 yeah. cents out of the data that they rip from your computer. That's 50 cents that they kind of made for nothing. So the the thing that stuck out for me, as I said earlier, is actually the, the glimpses it gives us of the, the people and the criminal underworld. Um, so, for example, yeah. the labs actually managed to get hold of the code, the command and control code. So not just the virus, but actually the, the server that the virus talks to, because some of the people operating it had just uh, left it exposed on the Internet. So just like you hear about people leaving Amazon S3 buckets open to the Internet and MongoDB databases. Well, and it NAS turns boxes. out. Yeah. <laughs> Ben already had a yeah. smile on his face. <laughs> it, it turns out that, you know, everybody can be lousy at security. Um, and just because you're a criminal doesn't mean you're a criminal genius. So um, there are certainly some some criminal non-geniuses out there and Software Labs was able to access the code mm-hmm. from those people. Having combed through the C2 code, the labs concluded that it was vulnerable to a number of attacks. They're basically saying, this isn't very well written. Um, it's got some pretty... Uh, shoddy development in there. The labs weren't the only people who've noticed that. So something else the paper says is that they observed other criminals taking over, so criminals taking over other criminals' C2 servers by exploiting those vulnerabilities, which is, I don't know, um, should that make me chuckle? Because it makes me chuckle. <laughs> I feel, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, and they also noted a few rare occasions where the criminals actually self-pwn by detonating the malware on their own servers. And they, they muse that some of those may have been deliberate, but some of them, maybe not. <laughs> and then the, the last little nugget is as the paper went to press, uh, it looks like Balder's uh, distributor, well, it looks like the Balder developers have actually fallen out with their distributors. Oh, really? So it's not being distributed at the moment. We expect that they'll probably do a deal with someone else. Yeah. But, you know, just to show that the criminal underworld is just like the real, you know, <laughs> just like the legitimate software world. Um, you know, it all comes down to bad coders and falling out and 
all the human yeah. stuff at the end of the day. So what's your advice to users? Oh, that's a, that's a great advice. question. So my first piece of advice is, although this is a fascinating piece of research, um, Sophos Labs obviously do this 24-7. They don't produce research paper like this, but they disassemble malware yeah. constantly. An awful lot of that, that is done with automated tools because there are hundreds of thousands of unique malware samples every day. So go and read this because it's interesting, but don't be distracted into thinking, right, I must make special efforts to defend myself against Balder. Mm. You have, there's an army of malware out there that you need to defend yourself against. So my advice for defending against Balder yep. is to just treat it like any one of the millions of other things that might be trying to get onto your machine or yeah. people might try to put onto your machine. So the usual advice applies, which it comes down to you need a strategy of de defence in depth. Right. And at the core of that strategy, you need some anti-malware software. So um, you can get uh, Sophos Home for free if you're a home user and if you're a business user, you should be thinking about tools like Intercept. The other important parts of a defense in depth strategy would make sure you've got strong passwords and patch, patch, patch. Okay. Thanks, guys. So, um, over to our questions on social media. Um, I don't know how you say it, R O E N W 22 on Instagram has asked how hackers get your password to use in the sextortion emails that we've seen. Just who wants to answer that? I'll do that because okay. they're, they're actually, if you go and search for, sounds a weird thing to search for. If you if you search on Naked Security for the word sextortion, we've got a whole load of videos that show exactly how this kind of thing happens. Generally, the way they make you believe that the that they have hacked your computer is they include some personal information. It could be that they make the email seem to come from your address, that they put in your phone number, they put in a password, and many people realise it's an old password. Basically, that stuff comes generally from data breaches. Yeah. And this is exactly the problem Mark was talking about with Balder. Crooks harvest all this stuff. They put it in their cupboard. They're not very good at security. Another crook comes along and steals their stolen stuff. And then a third crook gets hold of that. And eventually, it's so debased in terms of its value on the underground that someone just dumps the huge password files and things like that online yeah. where everybody can have a go. And that's what those sextortion guys are doing. They can get literally millions of val once valid passwords for you. So generally, they're using the password as proof that they hacked your account but in fact it's probably not your fault it's probably somebody else had a data breach that could be a company you shared the password with or it could be a crook who stole the data years ago okay so unfortunately there's not a lot you can do about it now other than go and make sure that that if that is your password go and change it because everybody world plus dog knows it yeah I okay. suppose one way of looking at these things as well is that the sextortion emails are a last throw of the dice so you have to think if the if the crooks know your password, yeah, then they ought to be able to make money from using your password by actually logging in as you and doing something and reselling your social media accounts and things like that. The fact that they're not doing that and they're yeah. emailing you and saying, "Ha ha, we know your password," is probably a good sign that that password is absolutely exhausted in terms of its value to them. Yeah. So, Duck, another question for you is. Uh, uh oh. <laughs> no, no, no. It's quite a, it's quite oh, an easy one. Um, Can uh, I have that one? <laughs> no, it's specific to Dirk. Uh, it's, uh, it was on our latest Facebook Live video and they are they remarked on how lovely your T-shirt is and they said, where can they get it? Two things to that. One is 
I love that people love my shirt, but it's always, oh, I saw you online. I love your shirt. What about me, guys? The answer is shop.sophos.com. <laughs> the, the Sophos store has a whole load of cool stuff. The, t- the Dance Like No One's Watching t-shirt, a whole load of other t-shirts, um, even, hoodies, even hoodies, cool <laughs> socks, my favourite being the blue screen of death socks, excellent laptop stickers, my favourite being for those about to code, we salute you. So shop. .sophos.com. Okay, last question is, should I be worried about using public Wi-Fi? Ben, do you want to take that one? So, I mean, ultimately, you should generally generally only connect to uh, wireless networks that you trust when you know where they are. Because at the end of the day, you know, by connecting to an untrusted network, there could potentially be somebody, a man in the middle, potentially they could have the capacity then to... unbeknownst to you, then introspect the communications that you're having with it, with an over an encrypted session, yep. um, but they could then be able to, to basically have visibility of that. So do be conscious of that um, and only connect if you fully trust the Wi-Fi network that, you, that you're connecting to. Basically. Okay, cool. All right, thank you. Um, that's about all from us this week. Duck, where can we find you on social media? I am at DuckBlog on Twitter and at PDucklin on Instagram. <laughs> ben? At BenCrypting oh. on Twitter. See what, See what we did, did there. Yep. Mark? Uh, you can find me at Mark Stockley and at Internet of Hens on Twitter. Oh. And also you can find me hanging around at Naked Security quite a lot these days. Yeah, you can. I'm at Anna Brady on Twitter and we are at Naked Security on Twitter and Instagram. Make sure you check out our Facebook Live videos. We are Naked Security, surprisingly, on Facebook. Uh, if you like our new podcast, please rate and review it. You can tweet us at Naked Security with your questions or suggestions and we'll try and feature you on the podcast or email us at tips at suffers.com. And until next time, stay stay secure. secure.